Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the ninth episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Carolyn McClanahan. Carolyn runs a very unique advisory firm out of Jacksonville, Florida. While she does both comprehensive financial planning and investment management, she does not charge an AUM fee at all. Instead, Carolyn uses a complexity-based retainer fee for her financial planning-centric services, sharing nearly $1 million a year of stable recurring revenue while serving 80 clients with three staff members on her team. In this episode, Carolyn, or I should say Dr. McClanahan, shares how she transitioned into financial planning from being an emergency medicine doctor, the details of how her advisory firm is now structured, and the breadth of those financial planning services that she offers for an average retainer fee of almost $10,000 a year. Carolyn also shares a unique client engagement standards document that she created, which articulates both the exact service standards her firm commits to when working with clients, right down to the speed that phone calls and emails will be returned, but also sets forth the requirements that her clients have to follow just to be clients, including following her investment process, being respectful to her team, and being good clients who return her phone calls and emails in a timely manner. And Carolyn was actually kind enough to share a copy of her engagement standards for all the Financial Advisor Success podcast listeners, which you can download from the show notes at www.kitsis.com slash nine for episode nine. Be certain to listen to the end as well as Carolyn shares her latest project for the financial advisor community, a platform called wealthcareplan.com with tools to help us as financial advisors assess when clients might be experiencing financial cognitive decline in their later years. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Carolyn McClanahan. Welcome, Carolyn McClanahan, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. My pleasure to be here. So I'm, I'm looking forward to having you on the podcast today because I know you have an advisory firm that's a little bit different than a lot of other advisors out there, both in terms of the nature of the services that you provide because you're a lot of us like to talk to ours about ourselves as being holistic into wealth management but I think you you go a little bit deeper into that than than many others do and, and we'll talk about that and also that you have a, a little bit of a different fee model than others that uh, you actually don't do an, an pure assets under management model as is so common today and so we'll we'll explore a little bit of that as well so I'm looking forward to bringing some maybe new and different perspectives around building a financial planning practice for all of our listeners. Beautiful. I look forward to this. I guess to kick off, like, why don't you just tell us a little bit about life planning partners, about your advisory firm and what it looks like? Well, we are a ensemble firm, and which means that we truly, all clients are clients of the firm. There are four of us, and we split how we take care of clients. So I'm in charge of tax and estate planning, and Carrie does the insurance planning and the projections, the college projections, and any goals, um, savings projections. And Tim does the investment management. And then Chrissy is the um, office manager and client services person. So we work as a team, and it, it's based on how I, on a medical model, really. 
really, where every Monday we sit down and we go through all the clients that we've seen in the past week and people that are coming up the week out, uh, the week upcoming and what we're doing for them and then any calls we've received. So we basically have, it's like medical rounds every Monday to review all the clients together. So we we have approximately, it's 80, 80 client families right now. Our typical client is the millionaire next door. A lot of them are former do-it-yourselfers who have realized that they've become too complicated to do it themselves well anymore. And they're looking for a fee-only fiduciary, and they love our model, which is flat retainer, because it's very transparent. And so our typical clients, two to ten million net worth. Eighty client families or so that are mostly millionaire next door. But I'm presuming that if you're if you're operating on a retainer model, like you don't look at this as saying like, well, we've got a, a an eighty million dollar assets under management practice, even though it sounds like you have someone that does help on the investment side as part of your team. So what what is the like how would you describe even the the size of your practice? I mean, do you still look at AUM even though you don't bill that way? Do you just talk about it as 80 client families? Do you view it as a certain revenue size? Like how do you how do you think about the size of the firm? Well, we it's based on how many clients we can handle. And yeah, there was a study I read a long time ago that the typical financial advisor doing comprehensive planning can handle 40 to 60 clients. And, and so when we started building, when I thought about the ensemble model and I said, you know, it'd be ideal to have three people taking care of all the clients, I thought, well, that's 120 to 180 clients. The problem is, is I think we do comprehensive planning way more comprehensively than most people. And, and so our, our plan in, in for us to have the lifestyle that we want and in terms of income and in time, our goal is to, to stick around a hundred client families, even though we probably could handle more. And, and so what, do, what does the charging structure look like then? Like, do you still have minimums? Do you just set like a flat retainer fee and here's our number and here's a list of stuff we can do, you buy it or not? Do you do like a complexity-based fee where you try to match a fee, you know, not necessarily to their uh, assets, but in some way it scales to their net worth and, and what's involved? Like how do you set that pricing? Yeah, it's a complexity fee. Now, when I started, and, and one thing that was very important to me is I, I, have no, I haven't left any clients behind. We have clients who very – who started with me from the very beginning who are who are not wealthy clients and we don't charge them our minimum retainers where they are now so so I went a number of years with our retainer minimum retainer being 5000 and we got too busy so now, then we upped our minimum retainer for new clients this is to 10000 and the way it works it is based on complexity and and so we have a formula where in our basically when we're talking to a client we we say how much work is this going to be and so we tack on and we do this in our head we don't break it out for the client cuz they don't really care they just want to know what's the bottom line so for you know for somebody to walk in the door it's like $5000 and anything that adds complexity we would we would add $1000 to the fee and and so we're, we're talking about how many people are in the family. Is it multi-generational planning? Are we dealing with trust? Are we dealing with business planning? Are we dealing with somebody who's very disorganized? And so 
all of that plays into the formula. Now, assets do matter to an extent. And, and it's funny because my study group years ago said, you know, we charge for asset management and give away financial planning for free. He said, you charge for financial planning and give away asset management for free. Um, and that's really, we don't give it away for free, but but we ch we've always, uh, in our formula, we were basically using the same basis points as a robo-advisor. And, and because in reality, we don't do complex investment management. We are passive in, passive investors, so we use um, passive equity funds. We do use do individual bond ladders, though, so that is a little bit more intensive. So if people have a lot of assets where we're managing bond ladders and we're managing big cash flow streams, that, that fee is going to be higher than somebody who has you know, a, a simple portfolio where we're going to be using mostly mutual funds. Now, the the it ends up being for our retainers, for people who are un, who have less than a million dollars, unless they have really heavy planning needs, we probably are too expensive, and we'll refer those out to hourly planners or to other planners that would more fit their need. The people who are between one and two million, we our fees would probably be very competitive with somebody who is doing assets under management, but the depth of our planning is much deeper. People over $2 million tend to find us to be a bargain. So are you ultimately, do you still have some partially blended fee then where there's a retainer for the financial planning? Or you did mention having a, a robo-advisor-like fee. So is there some like retainer basin AUM kicker fee for whatever investments you actually do manage? Well, well, we 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 manage a hundred percent of our clients' assets. I mean, I don't know any advisor that can really say that. So even their four hundred one k assets, and you know, so every we manage everything. And what I do is I set that initial fee, and then it's set for so so I calculate that in my brain, and I don't say to the client, well, you know, ten thousand is for the planning and twenty five hundred is for the investment management. I just say your fee is twelve thousand five hundred. But as you're setting your kind of complexity target, the the size of the asset base that you're going to be managing is at least part of what you have in your mind when you when you quote them a fee. Yes, but but in reality, it's the smaller part, and and again, it depends on what's the complexity of that portfolio going to be. If you have a person with one four million dollar IRA versus somebody who has, you know, and and I actually have this example: three different trust accounts, an individual account, and you know, multiple utmas for their children. That equal four million. The person, that second person, they're, they're, the fee I'm going to calculate for the asset management part is much higher. And so, how do you handle the overall? Like, I'm just curious how you peg these complexity levels. If you're saying you're you're doing these in your head, like, you know, do you just sort of look at these like, oh, this trust thing is going to be a mess. Like, I'm I'm marking this up three or four thousand dollars, or someone else comes, it's like, ah, eh, this looks pretty simple, or. I'm just going to mark it up a thousand. Or do you just have this like giant list in your hands? Like, all right, you're disorganized. That's a grand. You got an extra trust. That's a grand. You, you, you've got young kids with college. That's a, that's a grand. And like you, you, you just start adding them up one at a time and just it adds up to whatever it adds up to. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and I've been doing this for a long time. I started, you know, when I first opened my firm in 2004, I did AUM because that was the only thing I knew. And I mean, 
because I had learned about and it's like, oh, well, this is how everybody does it. I guess this is how I should do it. And then in that first year and, and my goal in my first year of practice was to take care of all my friends in emergency medicine. And that was it. And, and then I realized that some of them had money and I could charge them more because it was AUM based, but they weren't that much more work than the people who had no money. And it just didn't seem right. And that's when I, gosh, can I do this differently? And, and thank goodness I, I figured out early on, I'm like, gosh, I need to be in, and I'd read an article by Bob Varis about the retainer model. And then there were the, um, Alliance of Cambridge advisors. I think uh, what's, is that their, they, yep. their current uh, now name, yeah. Alliance of Comprehensive, Comprehensive Planners. Planners right. So I had um, been in a study group with one of their members and, and they showed, she showed me her, how they do retainer and it didn't quite fit my style, but I thought I'm going to come up with one that works for me. That's really based on the work I'm doing. And that's how I, came up with that model and it's worked. And, and so what I do is every, I, we pay attention to how much time we're spending with clients. It's not hourly, but we do, you know, we, we do pay attention to like how many meetings we've had, what sort of work we've been doing. And every, at the end of every even year, we revisit everybody's fees. And, and so if somebody's had a lot going on, then we're going to raise their fee the next cycle. If they end up being a lot simpler, we lower their fees. Most people, we end up staying the same. Are you, and when you do that kind of re-upping the fee, are you, are you going through the, the same kind of list of stuff? Okay, so we're still doing our complexity thing, but one or two of the trusts went away, so we're going to drop your fee a little, but you added more to your portfolio, so that mental earmark for the portfolio segments can be a little bit bigger because it's kind of a quasi AUM fee, but structured as retainer. Like, do you do that full recalculation or is it just a little bit more of, it's not really about the complexity per se now. It's just, we started with your complexity. Are we spending more or less time than we roughly expected for it? And just adjusting based on time. It's a little of both actually. No, now the portfolios, if somebody's portfolios have gone, if it's changed like 200,000, 300,000 up or down, we don't pay attention to that. That doesn't matter to us. If somebody adds a million, you know, if let's say you had a big inheritance or something, then that would matter. But more, it really is more about what's going on in their life and their time. So a perfect example is I had a client who left employment. So they were a W-2 employee and they all of a sudden have become an independent contractor. And now we're doing solo 401ks and defined benefit plans. So that, that increases the fee. And as you look at the time, do you try to assign some kind of value to the time? Like, hey, we want to make sure we get at least $100 an hour or $200 an hour. And like, ultimately, you're pricing it all the way back to your time? Or or is it not necessarily that direct of a connection? No, not that direct of a connection. And, you know, it really all comes out in the wash. I, I say to clients, some some years, you're going to get more than your money's worth. And some years, you're not. And and I think the value that they get from it, they and they really don't care. I mean, we have such low client turnover that it's not even, it's, you know, we lose clients through death or if they marry somebody we don't like. I mean, that's, that's true. It just, we just don't lose clients. And I think it really comes down to once they've been in and experienced, you know, how our ongoing planning, which to me, that's one of the biggest mistakes advisors make. You know, you get a new client in and you do all this great planning and then you start investing their money and then you don't really revisit the plans. 
And, and so we have a regular process where we, and, it, and we, it, we've made the process so easy, it's not that time consuming, but we revisit the estate plan, the tax planning, the insurance planning, and the investment stuff and, and projections every year. And we do it throughout the year. So we have this huge spreadsheet where we track what we, you know, each part we've done for clients. And we don't make them have meetings. We send them a report and we say, hey, you know, here's what I'm seeing. Here's how your estate breaks down. Who's going to get how much money? I checked all your beneficiaries and, you know, here's the list and, um, and what they're supposed to get. And here's a synopsis of your estate planning documents. And, you know, we just talked a little while ago, so I know everybody's alive and well and can do anything. Is there anything you want to change? And 90% of the time, everybody's like, oh, this is great. But 10% of the time, they're going to go, gosh, um, so-and-so, I don't really trust them anymore because um, they're doing foolish things with their own money, and I don't want them to be my power of attorney. And the clients love that because they know we always have their back and that we're always, that, that we're going to look at everything at least once a year and be proactive with the planning. Whereas most advisors, what they do is sit back and say, call me if you need me. I'm curious then as, as you like talk to clients or, or even pr- prospective clients about this, like, how do you explain this fee? I mean, when I'm, I'm just imagining I'm, I'm a prospect sitting across from you and I kind of talk through my situation. I say, so I'm interested in working with you. What would it cost? And you, you come back to me with $13,500. And, and I'm imagine I'm just saying, they're saying, where did you come up with that number? Like, can you, can you explain to me where that, where that retainer number came from? I got a friend. I thought he paid less to you. Like, how do you explain that fee to clients if you're not? you know, putting this whole like retainer complexity calculation process in front of them. So the first part is that I say to them, so they have a friend who's a lot cheaper. I say, well, your situation is very different from your friends. And, 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 you know, we've actually, we, we look at what we're charging and, you know, we went through an audit last year and they loved us. So it, you know, so I felt good about that, that they didn't have any issues with how we were charging. They were like, wow, you do all this for your clients. And, um, and so, but we actually go through and we, we talk, we talk about, okay, what are the complexities? And, and we kind of back test the fees to make certain that we got it right. You know, and that's what we do when we're adjusting the fees anyway. It's like, okay, you know, what have we done with this client the last two years? And then that, that's how we set it. Um, and so if, so I say to a client, this is just, it's based on all the work that, that we're going to be doing for you. And, you know, you have this situation, this situation, this situation, this situation, and this is what I'm going to charge you to do it. And, and you, and you just, you don't get pushback when you're quoting these like 10 plus thousand dollar numbers or is the reality just you 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 tend to sit across from people who have at least a million or a few dollars where by the time they do the math it's not that different than what they were going to pay somewhere else and so they kind of figure that out or it might be less yeah uh, our typical client has come from another advisor they've already worked with somebody and and so they and most of our clients now are for our referrals. I still, you know, and I broke it out. I think 90% of our clients are from referrals and the other 10% is from my work in the press. 
And the, the easier clients by far are the ones who are referrals because their friends have already told them everything we do for them. So we already have a great reputation and they know what they're going to be delivered. And so when, when they say, hey, you know, I want to work with you and they don't question the fee. Because they've already decided Hey, I'm looking for a high service, high touch advisor. I hear from my friends that you're a high touch, high touch, high service advisor. I presumably get it if I've got a million plus dollar net worth that high service, high touch just means it's going to cost me some money. And, and I've, I've probably accepted that by the time I call your firm and ask to meet with you. Yep. And, and you have to realize that people over two million, we end up usually charging less than what they're paying. Right. Well, just, you know, if, if, the two million dollar client ends up paying a ten thousand dollar retainer fee. Your 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 effective cost is fifty basis points. So so what does the the staffing infrastructure look like? Then you mentioned that you've got someone that does investments, someone that supports on college planning related decisions, someone that's that's providing office manager support. Is that the entire team? Is simply the four of you get it all done for for eighty clients? And, and now we realize, though, I'm, there's no lead advisor. We're all equals. So you're all directly just sort of interchangeably interacting with clients? Correct. And so if a client if a client has an investment question, they reach out to Tim directly. If they have an insurance question, they reach out to Carrie directly. If they have a tax question, they reach out to me directly. They And they know they can reach out to any of us, and we're going to give it to the right person to answer it. So how do you how do you keep track of all that internally in the firm? Is that through CRM or? Oh yeah, yeah. We if it's not in Salesforce, it didn't get done. Okay, and, and Salesforce is your your platform of choice for managing this. And but plus we have those meetings on Mondays where we talk about everybody. And so tell me a little more about that. That's just like a, a standard weekly meeting where we're sitting down like. A half an hour, an hour, two hours? How long does it take to Yeah, usually um, to half, half an hour to an hour. Okay. And is that like first thing Monday morning kind of deal? Usually around 10 o'clock. So everybody gets a chance to kind of like check their emails and all that. And then we sit down at 10 o'clock and we go through the calendar of everybody we saw in the past week. And then we go through everybody that's coming up in the next week. And we every, everybody talks about people, they clients that they talked with. So phone calls that they had of things we need to be aware of. And then we go through our big spreadsheet of, of you know, because we need every month our goal is to get through so many projections or estate plans or tax plans or whatever. And so we check our spreadsheet to make certain everybody's up on where they need to be. And it's kind of, we, we're very good at holding each other accountable for making certain we get the work done. The key for me, and this is something we can talk about when we talk about pains, is learning how to, uh, I had to learn how to hire people that are very much self-directed and self-motivated because I am a horrible boss. <laughs> I think that's a common theme to a lot of entrepreneurs and people we've had on the show is you know, we we like doing our thing. Ma managing people is usually not our thing. That was one of the big dynamics with uh, even going all the way back to Rick Kaler on our very first episode was that he he was pretty candid in saying, I, I, I am not a manager of people. I'm a technician and I like to analyze situations and and managing people has been a struggle for him throughout. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. He, he, and I have talked about that. I think we had might have a had a learning process along the way that we both had to do. <laughs> and so, what does it all add up to collectively? Like eighty clients paying 
various levels of retainers? I mean, are, are you does the is the firm's revenue like half a million dollars, seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars? Are, are you no, able to? We're, we're right. We're a tad under a million right now. And so, do you ultimately see that continuing to grow, like more 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 people on the team, more client families, and it gets bigger, or is there at some point where you say, all right, given the the service we want to give with the four of us, we can get up to about a hundred clients. And then at some point you're just going to say, all right, we're, we're done. You know, if, if someone dies, we'll go get a new one. And short of that, we're, we're just going to hang out at this level. Right. That's the plan. And, you know, well, cause the big thing, and, and again, we, we work on our strategic plan together. So we have a one page strategic plan we've been using for years that we adjust and part of that is what do we want to be when we grow up? And it's really funny. We have our big, hairy, audacious goal that I set back in, you know, 2008. And, and last year, everybody pointed out, hey, um, we reached our BHAG. And, and we did. And, and it was just like, gosh, uh, it felt so good. And it's like, where do we go from here now? And, and so one of the things that, that the crew is so supportive of is all the work that I'm doing outside the practice. And I had a choice and I, I belong to a study group of very large firms. I'm like the peanut of the bunch. And, and I thought, do I want to be like one of these? And one of the things I learned from my study group is they are all fabulous people. They work very hard and, and I don't want to be what they want, what they are. And, and so it was very helpful to me to see how big firms operate because, you know, I, I think I have the marketing ability that I could grow a huge firm if I wanted to, but I don't like managing people. It would be, it's, it's very tough to find good people who are self-motivated to have a holacracy across a much bigger, you could, it's done and people do it, but it's just not where I want to spend my energy. And my crew is very happy because they have fabulous job. They're paid very well. They're, they're totally their own boss. And so they can, we don't, we have a totally unlimited vacation policy. You can, the only rule is that we always have to make certain that the office is covered. All right. So if, if a client calls, someone needs to be here to answer the phone. Exactly. Exactly. You know, but the rule is you got to get your work done. And, and so nobody abuses it. And it's a lot of Angie Herber's work is, is where I got a lot of this from. And it really does work. Nobody abuses it. Everybody's very happy. And, and we get things done and the clients love us. Yeah, we've had a, a similar policy around that with our team for XY Planning Network, and particularly being a, a virtual team. We're re- very focused around just are you getting done the work and the things that you need to get done? You know, we're, we're distributed virtually, so I, I couldn't even oversee people's days if I wanted to, much less their vacation or the rest. And so we deliberately manage it as, look, it's, it's an open workday and an open vacation policy. You are accountable for getting your work done. But short of that, you know, if you, if you want to figure out how to do it from a beach somewhere exotic, as long as you got an internet connection so you can plug in to get your work done, you know, we're, we're, we're fine with it. And we give them that, that kind of flexibility. And, and we do find that they, as long as you hire good motivated people who are excited to be part of the business in the first place, they don't abuse it. And in fact, if anything, our, our rising concern now is they're so into the business and there's no sort of use it or lose it style vacation days. We're actually finding a lot of them aren't, aren't taking vacation at all. We need to push them to take time off 
as opposed to, you know, they disappear for a month at a time and you're trying to figure out what happened to them, which I think is everyone's fear when you have open vacation policies. Right. Well, and Angie, you know, they did studies on that and it's, it, it totally works if you have, well, and that's the other key important thing to having a great practice is setting the culture from the beginning. And, and when you're setting a culture of excellence and everybody and, and you're, you know, walking the talk, people follow it. So I'm curious, though, you talked about the firm as kind of a full team environment. You used the label on ensemble practice, which it was kind of become the in vogue label for, OK, we're we're truly treating clients as clients of the firm and we're an entire ensemble working with them. I know for a lot of ensemble practices that that term evolved originally around like specifically multi-advisor, multi-owner firms. So do you distribute ownership of the firm as well as everybody a partner of the firm? Or is this ultimately like it's it's your business from an ownership perspective? They're paid well to do work and be part of this environment and, and serve clients as a team, but they're not literally owners. Well, right now I'm 100% owner. And, and the, but they, every employee has total access to the books. So, and, and actually we have a formula for how we do pay raises. It's based on revenue growth. And so everybody's treated fairly and, you know, their pay scale is based on what they're doing compared to the Moss Adams numbers. And, and so everybody gets, so if we have revenue growth, it's, it's probably the only firm you'll ever see where you get a raise every quarter. And so what we'll do, let's say we take in 30,000 of recurring revenue, we take 25% off that for overhead, and then the other 75% is spread across our formula for raises. And do you, all right, so two questions then. Number one, if, if you were to have, unfortunately, some horrible quarter and, and no new clients came in and you lost a client or two and like an, and revenue went down for the quarter, do they do they actually take the hit to the downside? No, we don't get a raise, but we have enough cushion. We, we have enough cushion in our revenue that that we could do that. I can honestly say we have never had a quarter where we lost revenue. So even through 2008, 2009, that's the beauty of flat retainer is, you know, we, it, revenue does not go down. And so can you tell me a little, I mean, what was that like through 2008 and 2009? I mean, do clients start coming back and saying like, Hey, you were, I was paying you X dollars, but my portfolio just went down. And, you know, if I was at my old AUM advisor, I'd be, I'd be paying him less now. Cause it would, it would be built on the portfolio. I know you do your complexity thing, but you know, my portfolio is smaller now. I should get a break. I mean, did you, find that you got more fee pressure or people, you know, tried to bargain their rates down during the, during the recession? I had one person say something. I said, you know, a lot, we base, we base your fee on how much work we're doing. I said, and we've been very, very proactive about making certain everybody understands what's going on with their, their goals. And, and we don't like to talk about your portfolio. We're talking about where you are in relation to your goals. And that's, that's one of the beautiful things about this practice is people are folk. We focus them so much on the planning at the goals that the investment stuff is really, really very secondary. And so I said to that person, I'm working harder than ever. You should give me a raise. And they laughed and they said, yeah, maybe I should. Okay. And, and that was that. And then you just powered straight through on the, on right. the decline. Well, Yep. And, and well, the beautiful thing in, and, and I was, you know, I don't know, I don't, 
I, I don't want to say what I was smart, but it oh, it never made sense to me how advisors sell themselves on managing money when you really can't control the outcome of the market. And so when you set yourself up for trying to make people more money and you're having them take risks that's not necessary for them to take, then you've set yourself up for failure in a down market. So the beautiful thing through 2008, 2009 is our retired or near retired clients were very conservatively invested. So their portfolios were down 15%. Their friends were down 40%. Do you think they loved us then? We picked up so many clients at that time. Now, our bigger challenge though is because we are so conservative because we do, what we do is we do a financial plan and we say, based on what you're doing, you know, you don't need to take a lot of risk. So instead of letting people take more risk, we have them in more conservative portfolios than probably most advisors would have them in. So our bigger challenges is actually in up markets. Right. So the past six or seven years of, of this kind of raging up bull market, and at some point they say, geez, the S&P is up 200%. I, I don't feel like my portfolio is more than doubled. Well, actually, our clients don't even pay attention to S&P, but they do say, hey, you know, when we did our projections, you were using 6% return. You know, for the last four years, I've only gotten four. And But then that's – so one of the things that we started to do in the past couple years is talking about real return because – everybody's real return actually has been what we've been using in the projection. Right. Just, you know, rates are low in part because inflation's low, which strikes down all the returns, but not necessarily your real return, just your nominal return. Right. And I say to them, has your life, has, have we made you adjust your lifestyle or has your lifestyle had to change? And the answer is no. And, you know, and the numbers are still, and so, so we've been more cognizant of people, especially with conservative portfolios of using a 4% return now. So tell me a little bit about the rest of the business infrastructure. So your your CRM is Salesforce. Is that like Salesforce out of the block, box? Are you using financial services cloud or some other add-on to it? Well, we had, gosh, and it's been so, we've been using it so long, I forget who did this. We had a customized version of Salesforce for financial advisors. Okay, that was, that uh, that uh, like uh, the Accelerate templates or one of yes. those? Yes, mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then what's the rest of it? Are you, are you, so you said you are still, there are clients where you're managing assets. You don't specifically charge them an AUM fee because it's bundled the retainer, but you are managing assets. So are you uh, all with a custodial platform or using yeah, one we're of the with portfolio Fidelity. performance? Okay. Yeah. We're, we're with Fidelity. That's our custodian. And what, and what, what do you guys use for portfolio performance reporting? We just switched to Black Diamond. Okay. From? We were, oh, that's, that was a nightmare. We were on DB camps for years. The nice thing about our st- our clients really, they don't even look at the reports half the time. DB cams was fine, but then Morningstar bought DB cams. And so that caused a little bit of pain and because now they're starting to try to phase it out and get people on Morningstar office. And our biggest challenge is we use individual bonds. And it's hard to find portfolio performance reporting software that handles those well. And so Morningstar Office was wouldn't work. And we switched. You know, I, I have high respect for Cheryl Rowling. 
And we wanted a rebalancer because we have not had a rebalancer. And so we went with TRX, and and I respected her so much, and she had purchased TPX. I don't know if you know about all that. And so she gave us a deal because, you know, I said, you know, you, if, if it works well for us, I'm happy to tell people it works well for us. And, you know, and so it was a nightmare, though. And then she sold TRX to Morningstar. <laughs> so all, all of your roads keep leading back to Morningstar. Right. And so, you know, we're, we, we're a year into this, and and this is a nightmare. Their service is a nightmare. I thought, you know, and, and this is, and I don't, I do not make software decisions. That is Carrie and Tim's job. I, so I don't even have a, I have yet, I haven't even logged into Black Diamond yet. So, so we've spent the last year getting on Black Diamond. Okay. And so how has that trans- transition process been? The reports are much prettier, and but but that, that's been a tough transition too. Just because trying to migrate data and cleaning it up or trying to configure reports the way that you like to have them configured or where are the where do the challenge points come up? Just the data migration? Yeah, and it's and again, I think I think it's because I hate to say it because we use individual bonds and and some of the way they treat bond data is just not clean. DBCams was by far the best for that, and it just killed me that they took such a nice basic piece of software and you know messed it up. Yeah, well, I, I guess that's kind of a sign of the times of evolving advisors, right? Like you know, in DBCAM's heyday of I guess like the eighties and nineties when they were thriving the most. Yeah, uh, I mean, advisors use a lot more individual securities, and it's really just the past ten or fifteen years that we we shifted so much to mutual funds and then ETFs, and less about security selection and more about you know asset allocation selection. That the the focus on individual stocks or individual bonds just fell away as kind of a feature demand for advisors. So so now you're stuck with software that doesn't know how to handle individual bond issues very well. Supposedly, and, and this would be a conversation you'd want to have with Carrie or Tim, I just hear their rumblings. <laughs> I'm like saying, Key, and they're so wonderful about insulating me from muck that that I really don't have any business being in. And so, but but I hear the rumblings going on about uh, you know, they, it, the, the conversion could have been a little better. So talk to me a little bit about how you landed in the advisory world in the first place. You you kind of mentioned earlier you have a background as a doctor. So can you can you share with us a little bit of that that evolution, that story? Like how, how did you get into medicine? How did you get from medicine over to financial advising? Well, it's so funny because I was a math nerd growing up. My nickname in high school was the human calculator. <laughs> My dad wanted me to be an accountant, and but there's no way you're going to do what your dad wants you to do. So right. I, Simply I just, because your dad wanted you to do it, that crossed right. it off the list. Exactly. And it didn't sound very sexy, so I decided I was going to be an actuary. And I had no idea what they did. And I got to college, and you know I'm in advanced calculus in the first semester, and I'm sleeping through it because it's so boring. And I didn't even know there was Tuesday afternoon classes. And my first test, I, I made like a 95 and didn't study. And then I kept sleeping and skipping. And the next test, I made a 45. <laughs> and then once you get behind in advanced calculus, forget it. And so at the same time, I had this advanced biology class that I just fell in love with. And I also happened to be an athletic trainer in high school and in college. 
And my, and so my friends in the athletic training department said, you need to be a physical therapist. And I thought, you know, math is, uh, this theory crap is not numbers. And so I am going to be a physical therapist. So then I worked, now it's my sophomore year, I worked for a physical therapist during the summer just to make sure it's what I want to do. And I realized all they do is what the doctors tell them to do. And I'm like, God, you got to work really hard to get into physical therapy school. If I'm going to like work this hard, I'm, I want to be the boss. I want to be the, I want to, I want to be the doctor then. Right. Well, and it it wasn't, I didn't want to be the boss. I did not want anyone bossing me. So I ended up going to med school and, and I loved it actually. And so I got through and I, my, actually did my, I worked in the microbiology and pathology departments my first couple of years in med school. It was my like part-time job doing research. And so I ended up being a pathologist. I did two years in pathology, and then I realized how much I like people, and I had a good friend who talked me into going to family medicine. So that was so I did two years pathology residency, three years family medicine, and where I trained in family medicine, they had ER, did an ER track or primary care track. They didn't have an emergency medicine residency then, and so I did ER track. So I ended up practicing mostly ER and primary, and I did some primary care. Came down here on faculty at UF, and I, I liked it okay. And I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't like the bureaucracy of university practice, so that was one issue I had. But my my husband, who was my boyfriend originally when I moved down here, and then after I moved down to Florida. He said, I'm in love with you. Can I come down? And so he moved down. And his parents had died, left him a small inheritance. And and I and I was very interested. I, mean, I didn't leave my math nerdiness behind all through residency and stuff. I had opened an IRA and had done my own investing. So I, like, helped him invest his money. This is, you know, mid-90s through 90, 99. And we had done really well because we were brilliant, right? Right, right. You were right. stock picking geniuses, getting all those stocks that only went up in the 1990s. Yep. Yeah, yeah. We were very, so we were very lucky. And and around 2000, I was getting really nervous. I'm like, look, and he he used to be an engineer, and he hated it. And he says, I don't ever want to go back to engineering. I want to be a photographer and a track coach. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to take care of you. We got to make certain you have enough money. And I had no intention of quitting medicine or anything. I liked it, and you know, I was, and it was his money is kind of how I felt about it. It's like, you know, you're doing well, and I'm just happy to have somebody who's a house husband who's paid for. And and so we tried to find a financial planner, and they were all sales schmucks trying to put us in high fee mutual funds. And they really didn't, because our big question was, does he ever have to go back to engineering, or does he have enough money where he can go do these other things? And and they didn't answer our question. It was all about, here's how I'm going to invest your portfolio. And it's like, well, we're doing a good job with that, and we don't mind turning it over, but we got to feel good about the plan before we're going to let you invest our money. So we didn't, we didn't believe, and I didn't know what fee only or any of that was at the time. And, and, but I knew these guys didn't make me feel good. So we had a friend who was actually a bond dealer for JP Morgan in New York, who was my husband's friend from high school. And he said, well, his friend was married to the bond dealer. And she said, I'm going back to school to get my CFP designation. You ought to take the classes so you can learn for yourself. And I thought, oh, that's a brilliant idea. 
so I was going to become our own financial planner. And I went to started classes. This was like in 2000. I fell in love with it. And I just, it, you know, I love the whole idea of financial planning. And I, so I went part-time in medicine and I worked for a firm that was not, that they said they were fee only, right? They were insurance people who were, they said they did brokerage stuff on fee side, but then they sold insurance products. And that was back, and right around that time is when the CFP board made a rule saying if you sold insurance products, you couldn't be fee only. And, and so, but, but I went to work for them thinking they were fee only and their answer to everything was, you know, variable annuity. And, and so I said, gosh. I'm not sure I like this, but I always take the approach of when you're somewhere that you have to be, learn from it how not to do things, too. And so I learned everything I could from, from that and because I had to get my experience requirement for my CFP. But meanwhile, and then and that's when I was introduced to NAPFA, and I went to a NAPFA meeting. I'm like, oh, these are my peeps, and got heavily involved in NAPFA, and in, they were just so sharing. And it's like, Carolyn, you got to escape that environment. You know, it's better for you to go open your practice knowing nothing in an environment where you're being forced to do not good things for the people you want to bring in the practice. And I know right now you you are in Jacksonville. Were you in kind of Jacksonville throughout this this dynamic throughout this time? So so not a not a lot of choices on advisory firms to work with. I'm gonna I'm gonna imagine in the Jacksonville area. Back then, no, and it was very people were not very friendly. So advisors, it's like a competitor, and you know, in in the FPA chapter back then here, it's like night and day now. It's like I wish I feel sort of I'm very proud of the FPA chapter here now is is great, but back then it was all my very first FPA meeting was how to increase your annuity sales. And I'm like, oh my God, this is, these are not my people. And that's why I became heavily involved with NAPFA and then heavily involved in the national scene. And all of a sudden I have like this name out in the world and the people in Jacksonville are going, wow, how, how'd that happen? And, but, but our, our chapter, the, and I never went back and, and to the FPA locally until they, I'd become friends with a couple of them who were good people and they said, please come talk at one of our meetings. And I did. And, and the chapter had morphed a lot. And now it's a fabulous chapter. Lots of good people in the city. And it, it felt I was very honored because um, one of the old timers in financial planning said to me, Carolyn, you were the one that forced the change of financial planning in this city. You no, know, which would, to me felt like a big honor because there really weren't any, but it wasn't anybody doing truly fee only comprehensive planning when I started here. I'm curious, like, do you, do you still feel like there's overlap from the medical background and what you do as an advisor? Like, are, are there, are there parallels to that or not necessarily because we're still too different? Oh, no. I mean, to me, they are, they are totally parallel. You're taking care of people in the same way, the same, you're using all the same techniques we use in medicine. It's just you're taking care of their money instead of their health. And, and so do you, do you actually, is that part of the theme of how you engage clients? You talked about yourself like we're, we're doctors for your money and your financial health. Yeah, I'm not that cheesy, <laughs> but I, I approach it the same way I approach 
patience. It's like, and that's why it's, it's so foreign to me how advisors talk to people. It, it's gotten so much better through the years because people are really getting training and communication. But in medicine, we usually use a lot of appreciative inquiry. You, you make certain you really listen to your patient and, you know, get at what are their goals? What are their problems? And before you start trying to like solve their problems, you got to understand who they are and what they need first. And, and so the approach is very, it, it, to be successful to me, you got to approach it like, you know, in a deferential ma- manner, like you're there to help them. And it, I have to admit, it, it struck me that, you know, there's so much now that's happened in the medical world. I feel like particularly over the past 10 or 20 years of research on the importance of effective communication skills. I mean, I know on the medical side, there are even studies like doctors with better bedside manner literally get sued less. And and not even necessarily that they make so like far fewer mistakes, but just they're better connected to their patients. And so their patients try to work through problems with them rather than sue their way through problems with them. And I feel like there's, there's none of that here in our advisory world, right? Like we're, we're, we're just trying to figure out whether you checked enough boxes on a compliance form to reduce the risk that you lose if you get sued for something bad rather than, Oh, well, how do we actually practice appreciative inquiry and empathy and get to the point where we're communicating with our clients so well that even if a problem comes up, they just want to work with us to get through it. They don't want to sue us to, to blame us for it. Right. That's, I mean, you're exactly right. And in, in, it, it makes zero sense to me to, uh, as to why you wouldn't put yourself on the side of the client from the beginning and learn to work with the client from a place of empathy and a common goal of helping them create a great life. And when they see that you're really interested in them and helping them be successful, then the chance and making it clear, that's where we're going to, I'm glad we're going to talk about our um, client engagement standards, making it clear who you are from the beginning and what it is that you deliver and, and living what you say so they know to trust it. So, so let's talk about that further. I, I know this is kind of an interesting thing that you do in your firm that, that a lot of other advisors do. You have this thing that you call your client engagement standards. So can you, can you talk to us a little bit about what, what that is and, and what, what is it? So I have to thank Tracy Beckus was my business coach that I, I used when I was doing all this. And she's the one who said, you got to do these engagement standards. And now we joke she created a monster because I make everybody I work with in any project, we create engagement standards before we start. And and what it does is it sets the tone for what the relationship will be. And it's, you know, we all come with a set of expectations and we don't even realize sometimes that we have expectations. And and we and so we project onto people what our our expectations are often without ever telling them what they are. And so that creates miscommunication. And so with engagement standards, what you're basically doing is setting who you really are and what it is you're going to deliver and then what you need from the other person to work effectively with those people. So, so can you give me a, some examples? Like what, what, are your, what does this engagement standards thing say? 
Well, so any people can go, this is on our website. So people can go to client forms and look up our client engagement standards. And so the first part talks about our tenets of what we believe in. You know, we believe in comprehensive planning, that it's ongoing. Um, we have a very strict investment process and, you know, and that we charge based on complexity, not on assets. And that our whole thing is about financial planning and investments are just a part of financial planning. And then we go through what we deliver and it's stupid little things like, we return all phone calls within one day and emails within two days. That's it. And, you know, and that's one of the people's biggest pet peeves is, is when is this person going to call me back? Well, there's no question when we're going to call you back because that's what we say we do. And that's and everybody here has to deliver. If you're not doing that, you don't belong here. So so you actually like you affirmatively commit to certain service standards in in your engagement standards document of what you'll do for clients. Correct. Yep. And then, so we talk, we talk about how we dress, how we answer phone calls, what we do for people, everything that we deliver. And the key is, so it's got to come from who you are and that you know you're going to deliver this. So don't Because well, if you, if you commit to it in writing, like you really better be ready to do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So if you know you're horrible about returning phone calls, maybe you don't want to put that in there. But on the flip side, we all, you also have to put in there what you need from clients for you to work with them. And so, so one of the things that Tracy made me do is say, you know, what with the clients that you absolutely adore working with, what qualities about them do you adore? And likewise, what are the things that drive you crazy? So one of the things that drive me crazy are people who don't return phone calls. And so we don't hold people to our one day, two day standard. But we say you must return phone calls and emails within a reasonable period of time. And I tell people, if I don't, you, if demand, I've you demand this of your clients. They have to return your phone calls in a timely manner. Yeah, but we don't hold them to the one-day, two-day standard. But, but I said, you know, if I've reached out to you a couple times and I haven't heard from you, I worry you're dead. I said, just send me one email back that says busy. And that's all I need to know. And if anything is really urgent, though, you got to follow through. So we say in the engagement standards for things that are urgent, you really need to um, we need to hear from you immediately. If I have to keep bugging you for things, it's not going to work. And, and so and we have other things like you have our investment process. So before a client becomes a client or, or even before they come in the door to be for, to interview us and for us to interview them, we send them our investment process and the client engagement standards. And we say, if you cannot agree with our investment process, we're not going to take you. We're not going to pick stocks. We're not going to, if there's something you want us to research, we're not going to do it. And that sets the tone. All this gets detailed off for clients and it's just to like, you're on board for all this or you're not. That's the deal. Yep. And if they can't sign those engagement standards, they can't become a client. And, and you literally make them like read the, read the engagement standards document and sign the engagement standards document. They have to initial every responsibility they have. They have to literally initial their, like, I initial that I will return, return phone calls. <laughs> or phone calls in a timely manner. I will initial that, like, yep. I will take your investment advice. They have to sign off on each item. Yep. And we go through it with them. Yeah, we're, I'm sitting there and they're, they're checking it off as I go through it with them. And so, I, can we, can we, are you okay to actually give listeners a copy of this? Like, can oh, we, is yeah. it okay if we That's post it? That's what it's on notes? my website. I'm happy to send it to you and you, you can share it with them. Okay, wonderful. Well, we'll, we'll, well, then we'll include it in the in the show notes as well. So for anyone who's listening again, this is episode nine of Financial Advisor Success Podcast. So if you go to kitsis.com slash nine, uh, you can 
uh, download it, we'll make sure a, a copy of the engagement standards is in the show notes. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the beautiful thing about that is if you have a client and sometimes you have clients that want to be clients so bad, they'll sign anything and it's not who they are. And and so I have to take those engagement standards and say, look, you're not following this one. What can we do about it? So so have you oh God, it's like getting called out by the teacher. I know. I mean, well, in I mean, fact, I had it's so funny. Just a few weeks ago, we had a client come in who's friends with another client. The client said, hey, Rich is worried you're going to fire him (laughs) because he's because he's not following the rules and he knows it. Well, he's very. Yeah, he's this guy. He's wonderful, wonderful person. He's very, very busy. But, you know, so so we learn how people work. And and our rule is is. You know, we triage stuff. That's another term for medicine. If something's urgent, you got to get back to me. But if it's something that nobody's going to die if you don't get it done anytime soon, you know, we're we're not horrible. You know, we don't make people feel bad about about things like that. We just kind of have an ongoing list of, hey, here's the things that we've gotten done. Here are the things we need to do. And so he's always very good about when things are urgent. So he won't be fired. So. But uh, I mean, that raised the question, like, have you ever actually had to fire a client for failing to engage in this in the engagement standards? Yep, I have. You we, have? Yeah, we we, pro- we probably end up firing about one client every other year. And and what what was the what was the cardinal sin they committed that put it over the line? Like, I mean, are there some of these that are just more? more deal breaker than others? One, yeah. So one is we must always enjoy each other and treat each other with respect. And one guy didn't do that. Well, he treated me with respect, but he didn't treat one of my staff members with respect. Okay. And so how do you, how do you break the news that you're firing a client? Like, Dear Mr. Client, you remember this engagement letter you signed? You, you're you're not honoring it, or <laughs> I call him up and I said, Hey, look, it seems like a lot of times you're just not happy with what we're doing, and so you know, and I want us to be able to work together in joy and respect, and I'm not feeling joy, and so because you know I, there are clients who are very happy with what we're doing, and so I'd be happy to help you find another advisor. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing to me that one of the themes we've heard from a number of the guests that we've, that we've had on the podcast is, is this idea of really, really just try to work with the people you enjoy working with and don't make a lot of compromises on that. And, and just, you know, if the client's not a good fit, you just move on and you move them on. And, and that's that, which you know, I always feel like is, is, is one of those things it's it's easy to say that after you've gotten a certain number of clients in revenue and not so easy when you're getting started and you're just trying to get some clients in revenue so i'm i'm curious like have you always been this strict with clients throughout or is this one of these things that you you start doing over time as the business gets to a certain size. No, I did this as soon as I learned about it. So that, you know, I started working with Tracy. That was, gosh, in 2007. And so I wasn't very big then. You know, I'd started in 2004 and intentionally, you know, grew slowly to make certain I knew what I was doing. And so this, I implemented these very early in my practice. And Tracy promised me, and she was right, don't stray from it. Because that's going to just garner you more respect, and you're you're working with clients who value what you do and understand what you do, and they're going to refer people. And I can tell you, I haven't, mar- I don't market. We've never marketed, and our waiting list was a year long. So where did 
where did clients come from? Like you, you, you came out of medicine, then you went back to the the doctors you used to know who had some money and say, "Hey, no, I'm I'm going into financial advising. Do you want to work together?" Like, where, no. where did you? Well, so so it was very funny. You know, I'm a runner, and so my my running partner, who'd been my running partner for years, is a local business owner. And, and so she was with me when I decided to go back to school and then when, and she was with me when I was going with through school. And then she said to me, we want to be your first client. And, you know, and they're a local business person and I'm, I'm very active in the running community. So a lot of those people came from them. Interesting. So it was a, it was a local kind of a local affinity. I mean, we always talk about, well, I mean, I guess a lot of people talk about finding niches where you can work with people. So like your, your, your niche was working with runners because you were also a runner and just had a shared connection to them. Well, you know, what's so funny, I, and I actually wrote an article about this for financial planning magazine is I think people sometimes approach niches the wrong way. So I, well, you know, you focus on, and, and this works for some people, but for me, it really didn't. You know, you focus on a profession. I'm going to work with doctors, right? I, I, I know many advisors who literally, that that is their niche. They work with doctors. Right, exactly. And, and that might work, but see, for me, and so a lot of my clients are doctors. So, yes, a lot of my ER buddies came and said, hey, I want to be your client. And... And so, and then once I got into it and it, and they referred friends and you know, other people, the other th- place where I got clients was from NAPFA because I, I was the only NAPFA member in a city of a million to start. Oh, wow. So, so just that NAPFA find an advisor leads generation thing where they send people off to your website or they send you emails with prospects like that was actually a material a material driver for your business growth. Yeah. And in fact, that was so, um, you know, when I first started, I actually was working out of my house and this in 2004 and then all of a sudden, and and then I got rent offices, you know, where you can go in and. Yeah. Yeah. Like the uh, Regis type spaces, the shared office spaces. Right. I think I used it twice uh, in the first year I had it, but then I started getting calls from all these people I didn't know. And I thought, and plus I was tending, it was hard for me to put work away. I thought, you know, I just need to get a real office. So I did in 2005. And yeah, because I was getting a lot of calls from NAPFA people. So that, that was it at the beginning. And, and so the niche that developed for me is, is a, it ended up really being a personality niche. It was people who are delegators who had, were successful and who have become, and were great do it yourselfers, which most people hate you do it yourselfers. But for me, they're fabulous because they're well educated. They know what's going on, but they had realized they'd become too complicated to do it themselves well anymore. And they, but the, and they were smart enough to know to find a fee-only fiduciary. And then once they learned about retainer model, that really, it's like this makes so much sense because they always thought it was stupid that they were being charged based on assets under management. Even though, sort of partially indirectly, you set a portion of that retainer fee from their from their asset levels, but they don't they don't know that or they're not. No, they know that because I tell I tell people why what what I base the charges on. I just don't break it out. I don't say, hey, you know, I'm doing college playing. That's that. I don't break it out for them. But, so I say, hey, you have a lot of money, and that's more work on Tim. So that's part of the fee too. But but usually, I mean, most but you don't of, like line item out. You know, you had a 
$1.2 million portfolio, so $3,000 of your retainer fee is for portfolio management. Right. I don't line that out at all. And I would refuse to. I'm like, take it or leave it. I don't say, I'm always nice about it. I never say it like that, but, but they get the message. It's like, here's our fee. If it works for you, great. If not, I'm happy to find, help you find another advisor. And, and it didn't scare you or it doesn't scare you that you know, you're, you're going to lose clients by being that sort of that adamant or that firm about, you know, just this like take it or leave it approach to getting new clients? No. I mean, you know, I guess part of that is, and somebody told me early on, you know, your first three years, it's just going to be bleak. And it was, I mean, you know, I was getting clients, but it was, it was such a huge learning process and people wanted to make certain you were going to be around. That was a big thing. They, you know, once you've been in business three three years, three years is a, like, I mean, that's a long time, right? Like 36 months, a thousand days of, of like, it's dragging and it's hard to get clients and it's hard to get going. Right. And, you know, for me, thank goodness, because I, I still, I worked part-time in medicine my first year in my practice. So, and, and but plus we had my husband's money. So I had a, a, a nice cushion to where I could take risks. So I, you know, for people who don't have that, I, I don't know what to tell them. And so I was very fortunate that way, but I've always gone through my life with plan A, B, C, D, you know, so had my husband's money not been there, I'd still, I still would have been okay because I worked part time in medicine. And was that part of the actual like financial safety net of the, of the transition that you were, you were literally still taking ER shifts while you were starting to take clients and, and like gradually got more clients and reduced the number of rotations you were doing? Well, you know what ended up happening? It was tough for me because it's like all the, you know I've been practicing medicine all these years, and I'm really that's a huge human capital in investment, and and it's like God, am I really going to give this up? And I went to you know I, I became very active going. I went to FPA residency. I went to, in which I learned FPA wasn't so bad when I started going on the national scene. And then you know I went to all these NAFA things, and it was Mark Freeman actually who said to me. Carolyn, nobody's going to ever take you seriously until you quit medicine. And and so that was in 2005. And I worked for the ER I worked for. I was not a partner. I was an employee. And, and I knew that my revenues to them were pretty darn high. And I said, hey, I want to raise. And I, I said, if I don't get a raise, I'm going to walk. And they said, we're not going to give you a raise. And I said, bye-bye. And so I cut the cord. And, and, and I, and, but I knew that at that point it was like mid 2005, I knew I had a good thing going and I wasn't there yet. And we had savings and a cushion. So that allowed me the freedom to, to really do it the way I wanted to do it. Well, and and I know there's, there is a saying out there in, in the world of entrepreneurialism as well. It's kind of controversial on the way for you. It leaves it. This idea that, you know, as long as you've got a strong fallback plan, you may never give it your all, right? Cause like you, you, you need the feeling of operating without a net sometimes to really push you forward to do the hard things that are challenging to do when you're starting a business. So, you know, I mean, I kind of get it. like it's, it's hard to fully focus if you're, if you're still splitting time. And I guess at some point, I mean, were you tell? Did you tell clients as you were going through that that you you still had one foot in each camp and that you were still doing you were still practicing medicine while you were taking on clients? Well, yeah, because a lot of them were were people that I knew through the community and through running and through the ER, and so yeah. And in fact, it's so funny because at some point you can have a client that actually comes into the ER and you can 
really give full service. I know. Well, it was so funny. I, you know, so I had a client who reached me through Finite Advisor that lived actually in Tallahassee, which is about two and a half hours from here. And one of the hospitals we covered is in Tallahassee. So I usually spent like, I did four shifts in Tallahassee once a month. And we actually owned, our, the group owned a house in Tallahassee that I stayed at. And so I actually, this client came to the ER and met me. <laughs> you, met, you met your prospect in the ER during your shift break. Uh, yep. Yep. I was getting off my shift and I was, you know, in scrubs and everything. She wanted to meet me. I'm like, well, here's, here's the story. And yeah, it's a certain interesting version of credibility, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, I'm not telling a story about me being a doctor. It really is true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm curious if you can share a little bit of, of some of the other projects you're working on. Cause I know actually you, and you said earlier, like you, you, try to balance the time you're spending in the practice and then the time that you're spending doing other things as well. And so can you share with us a little bit of the, the other projects that you're working on now? Yeah. And I, yeah, I don't know if I finished that thought for you. You know, we made a conscious firm as a decision as a firm that we're not going to grow big. So, you know, once we do get to that, that hundred clients, we are going to cut it off and, and, and not take new clients. And the reason for that is because, you know, my coworkers, value what we bring to the profession. They, they're proud of what we've built and we think we have the model of the future. And, and so part of what I do and, and you and I have known each other a long time is I take the stuff I've learned from medicine and I educate financial advisors on all those important intersections between medicine and finance. So I've been speaking a long time. And so my recent project is one of the things that I have been very active in is elder care planning. And so planning for dementia, cognitive decline, and, and I've developed a lot of programs through the years on on ways to help your clients with transitions in aging through, you know, driving transitions, um, living transitions, healthcare decision-making, and financial caretaking. And I'm very fortunate in the work I've been doing. I, uh, I've gotten to know a lot of people, and I was approached, and, and I had great plans to put all this stuff in a book, you know, and the problem is I've been, and you know, I had my um, house eaten by termites a few years ago, so that put all that on, and so that kind of messed me up for about a year and a half of having to you know, rebuild the home. And, and so I, I met this guy who is a software developer and, and he is an MIT grad, a, a brilliant guy working. He was working with the Harvard psychiatry department in, out of MGH and they built a piece of software to identify early financial cognitive decline. So when are people having problems managing their finances? And I thought, Ooh, let me test this in my practice. And they're my guinea pigs on stuff. So I test and I said to the guy, you know, Chris, this is beautiful. I said, the only problem is you're identifying a problem and you don't have an answer. And I said, you know, I've, I've developed all these programs through the years on, on how to transition financial decision-making. Can that be put in the software? And he's like, oh my God, that's brilliant. So we formed a company together that where we built into software, all my processes for financial decision-making and transferring it, making certain everybody has all the pieces in place and the, the family agreements. Again, the, there goes your engagement standards. Family agreements are in place for how things are going to be managed. And, and so the software has 
two modules to it right now, and, and that's, that's the cognitive testing to see. So you'll test a client at the beginning to make certain that they're fine, and then you retest every couple of years. And then meanwhile, the second module is putting their financial caretaking plan in place of if you have a problem, here's what's going to happen. And so the software takes them through their financial caretaking plan, and then you revisit that every couple of years. And, and so what this does is as you have aging clients, it identifies problems early when it's easy to deal with it, and you already have a plan in place. And I use behavioral psychology behind this of perfect practice makes perfect. You know, when people are familiar with uh, what's going to happen, they're more comfortable with it. So ideally, once a person has cognitive issues, They've already heard a dozen times that, hey, when we identify issues, you're going to turn over your bill writing out to your son, you know, or whatever process we put into place. The financial caretaking, you know, creating these plans needs to start when people are in their 50s and 60s, long before they have cognitive issues. So it kind of, it, it primes their brain to accept the, the transfer of duties, for lack of a better term, so that with, with the least amount of angst possible. And so the other parts of the software that will come out later in the year are living transitions and driving transitions and healthcare decision making. And also there's going to be part of the software is going to be helping people identify their healthcare mindset and giving them a better idea of what healthcare costs are going to be. And the same with living transitions. You lay out what's your ideal living transition and then we actually have a, a cost module. Well, how, here's how much that's going to cost you. And it's down to the community. So is this available now? Like could, could listeners actually go and like put their clients through this? Is this openly available for advisors to use? Yeah. And so that's the, the financial caretaking stuff is all released in February. And so hopefully by the time people are listening to this podcast, it should be out. And Bar barring any last minute technical disasters between now and then. And so, yep. So um, that is, it's going to be for sale for advisors and, and, you know, they can get a free test period and all that. And, and then and the other modules will be if they're interested to try this out. It's, it's wealthcareplan.com. And that's with a W W H E A L T H C A R E.com plan.com wealthcareplan.com. Okay. And, and so the, is the testing for financial cognitive decline going to be in your initial piece as well? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the two, and, and, and actually we're going to, we're going to sell it as you can either just buy the financial caretaking piece because a lot of people don't do comprehensive living transition, you know, long-term care planning. They maybe do just investments. And, you know, one thing people need to be aware of is that the NASAA, the, the state securities, you know, they came out with model legislation last year of, what advisors need to be doing to protect their clients. And this software fits in perfectly to fit the NASAA guidelines. And and so a lot of people will probably want to use this, if, especially if they're dealing with a lot of elderly clients. So I'm curious, how like how do you envision like, inviting the client to this? Like, hey, I, I got a little test for you just to make sure you're not losing your mind. Like, I mean, I, I visit, like, there's probably a few clients that would say, hey, yeah, I love this as a, a monitoring thing. And, and then a lot of, and then some number of clients. And I mean, I hate to say, it, but like, particularly us men, right? Like, we like to have our machismo of saying, like, 
Yeah, I don't, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm not going to take your test to prove that I'm stupid and I'm losing my mind. Like, even if that's true, or especially if that's true, I, I, I don't want to take your test and, and, and prove the point to, to myself or my spouse. Like, do- so here that you bring up a great point. So it's so funny when I started testing this software in my practice, I, there was one group that did refuse to take it and it was men over 70. So you're exactly right. And that's why. But the men under, so the men in the 50s, they were fine taking it. And so that's why we're priming them for the future. It's like, oh, you know, when people are, when they've done things, they're more comfortable with it. So they'll take this test now. So when I ask them in their 70s, they're used to it. They they shouldn't mind taking it. So how do we introduce this? Well, part, you know, that's part of our comprehensive planning process. And, And we say to clients, you know, we do, we help you plan for aging. And so part of that is creating a long-term care plan. And part of that is, you know, what's going to happen with financial caretaking. And I, I count this in the estate planning. So we walk people through everything they need to do with their estate plan. And part of that is, you know, who's going to take over things and how do we prepare them for when they're going to take over. And so at least for the, the folks that are a little bit on the on the younger end, we can get them through it for our clients who are over 70. We may, we may still have to struggle to figure out how we convince or communicate to them that they're maybe having some challenges on the financial cognition. Yeah. Yeah. Cause once it's a problem, it's usually too late to, to deal with it in the most effective way. So yeah, my, my plan is prevention. Yeah. Well, and, and I know Michael Finca, Texas Tech now American college, I think actually did some research about this a couple of years ago and had found that, that, you know, what, one of the biggest challenges around financial decision-making capabilities in our later years is our ability to make the financial decisions declines in our later years, and our confidence in our financial decision-making ability does not decline in the later years. Like, we get worse, but we're just as confident, so then it just starts becoming disconcerting. Yep, and that's exactly what our test is testing for. It tests for overconfidence and and if you're, you're having a problem really being able to identify how to take care of your money. I'm curious as we kind of come to the tail end of the the interview here, as, as you look back over your career as a financial advisor and, and it's about 13 years now since you started transitioning and away from medicine, what was, what was the low point of the the process of building a business for you? You know, entrepreneurship tends to have highs and lows. So I'm curious, where, like, where, were the, where were the biggest challenges or blocking points for you? My biggest challenge is that I am not an easy person to work with. And because I'm very hard on myself and I'm very, and, and that translates into how I am on people. And, you know, especially coming from emergency medicine where we bark at each other all the time. I had to learn a totally different style. And so when when I started growing you know, way too fast back in 2007 and I had to hire my first person, my first couple of hires were a disaster. And it was and so it was like very, you know, I was juggling all this stuff, working too hard and not not knowing how to hire people and not knowing how to be a boss. And so that's where I had to do a lot of interior work on who I am and, and what, how I work and how I work with people and learn to temper myself. But the main thing I needed to learn is how to hire people who could work with me. 
And so one of the best things that I did is I started using the caliper. That's, you know, everybody uses all these different tests. And caliper is way more, to me, it's like one of the more in-depth, and it really identifies people's work style. And, and so, for example, uh, um, it tests your ego resiliency. We are not allowed to hire people who do not have good ego resiliency because I will squash them. And that's it just a fact. And I don't mean to, but, you know, and I'm a nice person. But if somebody is messing up a lot, I will say, hey, you're messing up a lot. And then if they go crying, I hate that. And and so I just don't do well at that. So people who have good ego resiliency, people who are, you know, we have it set for the jobs. And, and in fact, we just hired a part-time person that's Chrissy's assistant, not mine. And then it's so funny because the caliper people, People said, well, you know, who's going to be working with this person? They said, Chrissy. And we said, Chrissy. And they, oh, good, because they, she can't work with Carolyn. <laughs> Interesting. So, and, yeah. and so until so you found like just Caliper in particular was the one that that seems to work best for for kind of evaluating this for you. Yeah. Yep. And so, you know, we do very in-depth job descriptions, including the type of personality that needs to be hired for the job. And then we'll interview people. And, you know, Caliper's not cheap. It's like 300 bucks a shot. So we'll interview people. And once we feel good about, hey, this person could fit, then we Caliper them. And if the Caliper says no, we say no. And so I guess you do that but it's also pricey. So where, where do you where do you put that in your hiring process? Or right? because if you, if you do it too late, you're you, you know you've already decided you want to hire them, and then you're conflicted. And if you do it too early, you spend a huge amount of money. No, we do it we do it late, but and we're not conflicted. So if everybody says, and in fact, we had somebody recently who just fabulous, fabulous person, but there was one little thing that came up on our caliper. They said this is this part's not going to work. And, and it was so painful, but I just said, look, I've been through this before and I can't hire and, and, you know, this would not be a good relationship. And I want to, I want us to, I want to be able to help you down the road instead of destroy you. I said it much more nicely than that, but, but, you know, it's like the caliper says it's not going to work. We never hire against the caliper. And, and do you do that process on your own or do you have someone that you work with that, that helps you on that? Oh yeah, the caliper people, and you know they're really great about going. They know all of our calipers. Our consultant knows how all of us work, and 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 so they compare their the potential hires caliper to ours. Okay, well, very cool. We'll make sure we put a mention for caliper in the show notes as well for people that that want to check it out. So I'm curious from the other direction. When Rick Kaler was on for the very first podcast, he you know, described a lot of the, the challenges that he's had over the years as a, a AFGOs, another freaking growth opportunity. And and I feel like you know, when we look back on mistakes that we make, there, there's kind of two types. There's the, there's the AFGO style, like, oh, I did that and that wasn't very pleasant. But, you know, looking back, like I learned something from it. I've probably grown as a person. Don't know that I would love to do it again, but, you know, it, it, it shaped who I am. And then every now and then we have the mistakes where we look back and say, oh, oh that, would, that was just terrible. Like we should just make sure that no one else ever actually has to go through that. So I'm, I'm curious from your end, are, are, there, are there any things like that that you look back on your career and would just for any listeners would say, hey, whatever you do, here's just a thing you should really try to avoid. Just take it from me. For me, the, the, you know, I've been grateful is one of the things I 
am very good at doing is paying attention to other people's mistakes so I don't make their mistakes. So I, I read a lot and, and I, you know, I follow your work a lot and Bob Varis. And so I've, I, I learn, I try not to repeat other people's mistakes. So I've been fortunate. I guess my only mistake was my hiring issues uh, and, you know, little mistakes, but nothing that I really regret. I've had lots of learning opportunities, of course, but the, to me, one of the other reasons I think that I've been very successful, I've, I've always been very authentic about who I am and, and what I do. And that to me has attracted both people I work with and the clients that we work with who you, you never have to worry about being anything than who you are with them. And that just creates great relationships. So my final question for you that, that we ask all of our guests that join us here on the podcast is, is simply this. How do you define success? Oh, it's living every day in love, joy, and balance. Living every day in love, joy, and balance. Yep. <laughs> Does that, it feels like a tall, a tall demand every, every day. Are, are you, is that something you feel like you're there, you're moving towards? Well, you know, it's very interesting. I, I, I think this comes from my background in medicine in that people can die any moment and you never, and you know, life changes on a dime. And life is not the destination, it's the journey. And so if you're not enjoying every day and, and being surrounded by people who lift you up, that you enjoy being around and doing work that's purposeful, then to me, you aren't, you're missing out and you're not living. And so, you know, not every day is going to be perfect. You're going to have poop happen. And again, those are learning opportunities and, and just, you know, stepping back and taking a deep breath and saying, you know, living in the here and now. And, and so to me, I reached the, the day I learned that and the, the day I learned to, to focus, you, know, you, you of course have goals for the future, but if you think your happiness is going to happen when you reach your goals, that's totally wrong. Your half, happiness has to come first. And so that, that means living every day with intention and purpose, and then you will reach your goals. And I guess that also goes to, you know, why you're, you know, why you're willing to say no to clients who don't fit your, your structure and the engagement standards because life's too short and those just aren't the people you want to work with. Right. Right. And, you know, everybody, we all come from different backgrounds and have different ways of operating. And, and thank goodness, you know, the people who I can't work with, there are other people out there who can work with them. And I, I'm not, it's, it's probably more of a Buddhist philosophy. I'm not attached to the consequences of anything. It's, you know, you're, you try your best and, and I'm a, one of my favorite hobbies is the study of complex adaptive system science. I know that sounds kind of nerdy, but it's the unknown, unknown unknowns and, you know, trying to plan for everything just doesn't work. And that's why building inner resiliency, anti-fragility, if you read any of Taleb's work, that it's, you've got to make certain that you are preparing for whatever can happen and being resilient. Well, amen. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up right there. Thank you so much for joining us on Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Oh, my pleasure. I'm excited that you're doing all this. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View 
at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.